Hello and welcome to the Brock Campus Conservatives podcast. The Brock Campus Conservatives podcast is a platform designed to open up dialogue for members of the Brock community and to facilitate discussions on wide-ranging topics today. Participating with us are members of the Brock Campus Conservatives, Devin and Luca. As well as joining us today, we have guest speakers from Brock University students, Noah and Benjamin. Welcome, and I ask you all to please introduce yourselves. Hi, so my name is Devin Long, and I'm the president of the Campus Conservatives, and uh, looking forward to the discussion today. Hi, I'm uh, Luca Batista. I'm a member of the Brock Conservatives Club, and I think we have a good episode panel for you. My name is Noah Nickel. I'm the uh, managing editor at the Brock Press, and I'm happy to be here. Hi, my name is uh, Ben Hirsch. I am a second year student uh, at Brock University. I'm from Regina, Saskatchewan. This is my first time on the podcast, and uh, hopefully we can uh, have a good discussion today. Today, we are going to be discussing topics surrounding recovering and rebuilding from COVID-19 in Canada. For our first question, what are your thoughts on the implementation of a vaccine passport? Is this something that Canada should consider? And to start off, we're going to send this one off to Devin. Yeah, I think the vaccine passport is actually a really good way to kind of kickstart um, the post-COVID economy. Um, for a portion of time, it is expected that until we achieve a level of high vaccinations, you will need to restrict travel to, to only people who have been vaccinated. Um, and, and it's just the, it is the logical choice, I, I think, is, is having a vaccine passport. I agree that I, I see <laughs> the importance and the need for it, uh, for immediate recovery, but it certainly is going to have uh, legal implications in Canada, especially given, you know, our constitutional right to travel throughout the country. Uh, it definitely puts that into question. Uh, and there's, you know, the issues of, of, of equity, right, around the world. There's definitely a lack of access to the vaccine for a lot of people. And so to have a system like this that is being talked about by a lot of countries uh, definitely creates a bit of a well increases the have and have not sort of dichotomy between the global north and global south who have access and who doesn't to the vaccine. I'm going to kind of put a counter uh, claim here. I really don't think it's that great of an idea. It just doesn't to me make a lot of sense to have that kind of restriction on people who choose not to have the vaccine because getting the vaccine my understanding of vaccines and unless i'm mistaken is that once you get it you are the one who's safe you're not necessarily um protecting the people around you you're just protecting yourself so i don't so if you choose not to have the vaccine i don't really see how that impacts other people and you know be have having a vaccine passport that implies that if you don't get the vaccine you're not allowed to fly and you know it, it like implies you're like a menace to society you're a criminal it just doesn't seem right in my opinion and i i think that trudeau will probably implement it uh just because that's kind of how he is but i don't know that's just my opinion it is um, a violation of rights to of freedoms to travel and uh, of choice and whatever. But I think that if it has to be implemented and knowing the Trudeau liberals who always implement the most 
radical of things for random reasons. I think it will be implemented, but I think it will only be implemented in the short term because um, of course we don't have enough vaccines right now and enough people vaccinated to really not have one. So I think if it should be implemented, it should be implemented in the short term, but I think that eventually in the long term it won't be needed because I think that in the coming months, and I, I'm for sure by 2022, we'll be, have enough people vaccinated that it won't really be a necessity and it can be lifted. Now it's important, I think, to mention that uh, you know, radical Doug Ford is also, and his government have been talking about a passport of of sorts, you know, to restrict access to uh, movie theaters and certain sort of like tourist type attractions in Ontario to people who uh, only have the uh, the vaccine. So, just to put that out there as well, <laughs> I, I tend to understand all the points that are kind of being thrown out here, um, and I think. When we first started discussing vaccine passports way back when, there was this idea that people who were vaccinated couldn't transmit the virus. I think increasingly that is being called into question. And I think that there are cases where people who have been vaccinated do and can still transmit the virus. Um, and so I think for quite a time longer, the most important thing will be testing right? Uh, specifically for large populations who, like Canada, who haven't been largely vaccinated, the most important thing will be reducing transmission. And if being vaccinated doesn't reduce transmission, then you still need to have widespread testing. And I think that will probably be the more important thing uh, in the interim than vaccine passports. Well, I think a point to bring up is that you know, there's still flights going on now and there's no one vaccinated. So it just, what what is the difference between widespread vaccination and me, be, like, like, let's just use me as a, use me as the scapegoat. Say I'm not vaccinated, right? I go on a plane full of vaccinated people. How am I a threat to them? when right now nobody is vaccinated and I can go on a plane right now. Does that make sense? I feel like part of it is a little bit of uh, theater. Like we saw with, uh, well, it didn't happen so much in Canada, but the places where they had the rapid, um, the temperature takers that they put up to people's foreheads, it kind of gives people a sense of, you know, the security theater, what I uh, mentioned before. So part of it, especially if, you know, more information is coming out about uh, what the vaccine actually does for people. Uh, you know, some, a, a plan like this might be coming from that type of perspective to offer people that sense of security that's explicit. Uh, but obviously, you know, this could easily be, I, th I think at least, uh, could be struck down uh, on constitutional grounds pretty quickly. At least it seems like it. Uh, there'd have to be a way to go about it to, to avoid that. Yeah, I think... Ben, you bring up a good example. Um, and I think for the most part, I agree with Noah. It, it is a lot of just making people feel more calm uh, and secure. I know initially I said that I was in favor of the vaccine passport, but I think considering the fact that people who are vaccinated can still transmit the virus, the vaccine passport stands really to, to do nothing other than to make people feel more comfortable. And it's not really backed too much by science. So for populations that, again, are, are not heavily vaccinated, 
individuals that are coming from, you know, individuals who are vaccinated can still transmit the virus to those unvaccinated populations. And um, letting your guard down to people who have been vaccinated can act, could actually be a disastrous policy. Well, here's the thing. Let's say that the vaccine is readily available. Anyone can get it. Right now, we're obviously not in that stage. Trudeau's kind of failed on the vaccine supply. But let's say in a couple months down the road, everyone has access to the vaccine. I, uh, again, will use me as the scapegoat. I probably will get the vaccine, but we're still, well, I don't know. If I choose not to get the vaccine, uh, I am aware of the risks that uh, are with that, that I am, ex I have um, risk getting COVID-19. And that's on me now. That's no longer a safety issue of the vaccine. The issue is probably at the heart of this is also like trying to protect the butts of big corporations, right? So corporate liability, they don't want to be, um, you know, they don't want to be liable for people coming at them because, you know, they let unvaccinated people and that's where they got COVID from. So that would be, you know, it makes sense that, you know, you take the personal risk of not getting it or, you know, whatever choice individuals make, but there's definitely that uh, larger angle that kind of has to be considered. And I think that would be a big part of why they do it as well, you know, to cover, to cover their butts and give them an, a way to operate basically as normal uh, without having to worry about that, that angle for much longer. Yeah, that's a really good point, Noah. Um, besides, like, you know, there's a lot of people who are willing to take on a lot of risk. And, um, you know, if if some 80 year old doesn't get the vaccine and wants to go and take a flight and happens to, you know, like the, the flight is full of people who have been vaccinated. But just because you're vaccinated, you can still transmit it. So let's say somebody who has been vaccinated transmits it to the unvaccinated 80 year old and he dies on the flight. That's a huge liability for the airlines. That's scary for a lot of other people. Um, and, and nobody wants a situation where, you know, somebody could potentially die, right? Um, and I think that's something to think about. Again, that's on the person, I believe. But, you know, we'll, we'll move on now. Currently, just over 1 million people roughly 2.86% of the Canadian population have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Canada currently has three vaccines greenlit by Health Canada, with a fourth potential COVID vaccine produced by Johnson & Johnson. The question posed is, how do you believe Canada's vaccine management has been dealt with to date? And what steps should be taken to ensure efficient COVID recovery in Canada? And we'll send this one off to Luca. I think that the um, vaccine management has been a complete and utter disaster from the beginning. Like most things that the Trudeau government has done in its term. But I think this one is the most embarrassing thing. It's that we are a country that is one of the most advanced medical systems in the world. Yet we fail to get even 50,000 vaccines. Now, of course production from Pfizer and Moderna, that has, to, that, that has to do with it, that has something to do with it. But let's not forget, what should have been done is that Trudeau should have invested billions of dollars, if not millions, billions, who, who knows, into Canadian science, because we could have easily made a vaccine here. For example, back 
last April or May, shortly after the pandemic began, we found out that a Canadian university, I think it's Saskatchewan or somewhere else, isolated the vaccine. I mean, isolated the um, virus cell. And then what did it do not after? We did nothing. We just sat there and waited for the United States, Germany, Belgium, and Russia even to make the vaccine for us. And now we're relying on them. So I think Trudeau has done very poorly in the vaccine management distribution. And what he should have done is what Premier Ford has said in numerous times that we should have used our Canadian science, which is one of the most advanced in the world, to make our own vaccine and thus produce firstly for, for the Canadian people and then secondly for the rest of the world. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Luca. Um, there's a lot that this government could have done proactively that it didn't do. I think one of the main things was the fact that they are now only starting to develop vaccine production capabilities. Uh, I think they were building something, um, I don't know if it was in Quebec or somewhere in Eastern Canada, but for a long time coming, we knew that vaccines were the only way to really get out of, of this pandemic, especially with, you know, having the United States as as our neighbor. We're not an island. We can't exactly lock people off and, you know, quarantine as effectively as, as say, Iceland or, you know, uh, Australia or New Zealand. Um, and we invested no resources really into increasing our capacity, our manufacturing capacity to develop this, right? I think one of the only real vaccine um, research that we were conducting was side by side with a Chinese company who ended up pulling out and doesn't even talk to us anymore in terms of uh, medical collaboration. So it's really been a disaster since the get-go in terms of domestic production capabilities as well as research capabilities. What's done is done, but uh, people could easily revisit it and could say where the mistakes have been and what we could have done better. Yeah, Luca, you, you brought a, a good point. Like it was very early that I think it was the University of Saskatchewan uh, isolated the, um, uh, the well, COVID-19 to try to develop a vaccine. That was in March, 2020, I remember that. And, you know, I was like, I was like, you know, being from Saskatchewan, I was like, of course, these guys just, I don't know, they just figured it out. I, I probably, but I don't know, I, I won't diss them, but, you know, it was pretty exciting news, but I, and I tried to follow it. It kind of dissipated, it died in the water. So I don't know whether they gave, I don't think they gave up on it. Maybe they ran out of funding, but they, they should, I don't know, Trudeau should have doubled down on that. But I don't know, Trudeau kind of has a disdain for the West. Maybe that has something to do with it, maybe nothing at all. But it certainly is suspicious that back in March 2020, there was headlines about University of Saskatchewan trying to develop a vaccine and it died almost like there was no more news about it. It's like, what happened? This is definitely an easy issue to, you know, sort of Monday morning quarterback because it's... They're, the holes are gaping, as you guys have mentioned. I mean, the, the issues are clear. But I'm not sure any any government in Canada, whether it's conservative or liberal or NDP, if they ever did form federal government, uh, could have, would, or not could have, would have handled this situation any better because a lot was dependent on um, 
spending in, in excess and actually uh, proactive governance, which no party has engaged in in Canada for a very, very long time. Our capacity to do to do anything in Canada has been stripped to the bare minimum possible. Uh, and that's purposeful. Uh, and that's been, you know, the result of, you know, uh, multi or, you know, trade policy like NAFTA and other free trade that uh, definitely caused a lot of our manufacturing to to leave uh, because it's an expensive country to operate in. And the, the main motive is is money. So I, I don't I can't see a conservative government having handled this any different, uh, partly you know, because they operate in a similar ideological bent, but also because of years that came before. And no one was really prepped for this, uh, the reality of 2020 before it happened, save for those few months. But again, it, it would have taken years to recoup the, the manufacturing capacity that had been shipped off for decades from Canada. For our third question tonight, at what point do you believe current COVID guidelines, including reduced operating capacities, social bubbles, and social distancing should be lifted. For this third question, we're gonna send it off to Noah. We've touched on it uh, briefly already, but I think it's gonna have to do with what the reality of the vaccine turns out to be. And that's gonna take uh, months of just sort of it being in effect, right? Where after countries, um, you know, we, we achieve herd immunity by vaccinating whatever the per high percentage threshold is of the population. And seeing how transmission and you know hospital admittance rates are affected by that, uh, because there is a lot of uh, unknown about what it is protecting from and the uh, rates of protection uh, that the vaccine provides. So uh, it's, it's probably going to have to stay in place until we really understand uh, the effects. And you know if if the vaccine does turn this into sort of like a flu-esque you know uh, disease or you know and something seasonal that doesn't have the same effects in transmission as it does now, then, you know, clearly we could lift some of this stuff or most of it or all of it. Uh, but again, that's going to take uh, time and sort of just monitoring the situation. I'll step in here. I think that in a perfect world, I would say lift it tomorrow or lift it next week. But unfortunately, of course, as we all know, we don't live in a perfect world. But I think that it should be lifted gradually, the same way that's currently being done right now by, of course, the Ontario government, even in Quebec, even in pretty much all of Canada and elsewhere around the world. I think that uh, the restrictions should be lifted gradually and it should be lifted by a region. For example, I think a region like, say, um, Barrie or North Bay or Northern Ontario should have it lifted because sparsely populated case numbers aren't there. But say a place like Toronto, which is to be blunt and straight to the point, a cesspool of cases right now and has been since the pandemic began, I think should be a bit more cautious in the reopening process. And I think that such process of a gradual reopening, regional reopening, should continue. Yeah, Luca, I, I do agree with you. If it was perfect world, ideally, I would say it's like, well, let's lift it tomorrow. Let's go. Uh, but like you said, not perfect world. I think, yeah, I do agree with you. Uh, to open it gradually. But I think one thing to keep in mind is if cases do start to go up, I wouldn't, this is some, this is a problem I have with Doug Ford. It, it seems that he'll open things up a little bit. Cases will, will tick up 
and then he'll completely shut it back down again. I feel like you need a little bit more room to see if it will go away. And if it keeps rising up exponentially, then you can lock it down. But I feel like Doug Ford has kind of been a bit gun shy with it, that every time he opens as of late, he just automatically shuts down as soon as any sign of COVID happens, which, you know, some people would say, well, good. But it's like the disease itself like the flu, like like someone said, I think it was Noah, isn't going away. So these things, we shouldn't be petrified of it if the cases do start to go up a little bit. Um, I would say that we could have opened a long time ago if we had an effective strategy of reopening. I think the main issue is that um, we felt that Pletsy glass and people wearing masks would be the solution to everything. And it's it's not that that's not necessarily the situ- the situation. What we should have implemented is the gradual reopening of public places with increased testing. The only way to, in my opinion, to to fight COVID is to have as much testing as much as possible with as many people as possible, so you can isolate cases quick, and you can isolate networks that are connected to those cases as quickly as possible. Um, I think that we've done a really bad job at contact tracing across Canada. Uh, This isn't just Ontario. Um, And our failure to effectively contact trace is really what has prevented us from reopening the economy. I, I do believe that there was a time where Canada could have beat COVID, just like Australia and New Zealand had. And unfortunately, we missed that opportunity. And uh, I, I think it's time to open up. I think it's time to focus on testing, isolate the populations that are vulnerable, and uh, move forward. Contact tracing bit, I think, is important because we definitely, definitely have failed on that front. Uh, they know they're completely overrun with uh, the information on that to properly <laughs> implement that. And then, you know, the uh, the efforts to trace restaurants and stuff were a joke. I mean, I remember people were putting in uh, Doug Ford's phone number or something in a bunch of places. I remember reading that. <laughs> he kept getting calls to that number for uh, the contact tracing. So that, clearly it wasn't uh, very effective. But, I mean, I think the best way to – I don't know. It's, it's really tough because there's definitely a case for reopening, uh, and it's legitimate. It doesn't mean – you know, everyone has to agree with it, but there definitely are many reasons to reopen as there are many reasons to sort of see how things go. But I think the most logical is just to understand what, you know, herd immunity looks like uh, to this uh, virus. And if, you know, whatever, what the vaccine actually does and how the three or four, however many we end up approving vary. And yeah, I just think it, it makes the most sense, but not necessarily the easiest and, you know, not necessarily the only choice that is reasonable. I just wanted to touch on a point that Devin made, and he, I I think he breezed by it, but I want to put emphasis on it, is that you said, or Devin said, that to isolate the communities that are vulnerable that I think it should have been what we've done bef- uh, in the first place 
we've known like since the beginning, since March, and this fact has not changed, that this disease uh, disproportionately affects um, older people and people who have certain immunal comp uh, compromises. That was it. People who were healthy were much less at risk. So why then are schools still shut down? Why are they still not um why are they not at full capacity what full capacity or at least any kind of capacity places like all the universities are shut down lack of school has definitely impacted the mental health of children you know uh, children teenagers there was a study that was just uh, released yesterday i found and it was um a, a, a data that recorded um the number of overdoses and self-harm incidences of uh kids 13 to 18 in uh, april uh, and august uh, of 2020 versus uh 2019 and the increase of that increase of self-harm cases were increased by 330 percent and the sample pool was 32 billion. So it's accurate data. So the fact that kids are still isolated and not able to see their friends, not able to socialize properly uh, because of this fear, it, it, it's really, it's depressing to me. It's depressing. Yeah, I think all those types of concerns are legitimate and should, and I think are generally considered uh, they might not be reflected in the decisions that are made, but I don't I don't think anyone in those types of positions to make the decisions on lockdowns and other measures aren't seriously considering those things. They just might uh, place the or see the risk in different uh, scenario. But uh, the, the fact about isolating at risk communities, I think, is easier on paper than in practice, which is you guys kind of alluded to before as you know why you know in a perfect world you could open but clearly that's not the world we operate in so it yeah because you never know how people who people are interacting with and it's it's easier on paper to say that those who are at risk should stay home but you know the, how about the people that live with them or how about the people that they work with or you know and even the people they see it in stores or wherever it just it, to it totally complicates things. So I can see wanting to err on the side of caution uh, from government officials on that for sure. Yeah, I just want to, um, maybe I'll put this out as a question. What is the exact figure in terms of government spending for this pandemic? Because uh, I just briefly read it was 240 billion, but I think that was just in 2020. So if that's doubled, the government, and and I've just kind of been throwing this around. There's 500 million, sorry, there's 5 million seniors in Canada. If we took the $240 billion, which the government had spent in 2020 and had given it to seniors who aren't able, or even if we gave it to every single senior, we'd have $60,000 per senior to distribute to them to make sure that they are able to live and, and isolate in an environment, right? Create environments where they can isolate. 
we 100% could have isolated those at risk if we wanted to. Um, but instead, we distributed money across the entire population. Lots of people who were completely unaffected by, or would have been unaffected by COVID who are now being affected by COVID. There was a better way to do it. And it's very easy for me to say that this is what we should have done because, you know, obviously if, if we were all in this position a year ago, you know, we don't have the benefit of looking back, but uh, this is something that could have, that we could have done. And I think we should have done. And with that, we'll move on to our fourth and final question for this evening. How do you think rebuilding and reopening post-COVID will affect small businesses as opposed to large businesses? What can the government do to ensure businesses are able to recover and rebuild post-COVID? Well, I think you'll, the small businesses have clearly suffered from this pandemic. I think it's clear that if they reopen, you know, they're kind of at a disadvantage, I guess, but they, I think they do need to be open. Like in Saskatchewan, where I am right now, uh, most businesses are open. Gyms are open, restaurants are open, and stuff like that. And right now, the economy is doing quite well. And what can governments uh, do to ensure businesses are able to recover? I guess just don't lock them down as hard as it is, because uh, you know, you guys talked about this in um, your first episode about, you know, the implement uh, of uh, the COVID plans in Canada. It it's totally it makes no sense to open up these huge businesses with reduced hours, meaning that they have a shorter time span to bring people in and out and have everyone in one location. It makes no sense. It made no sense from the beginning. It makes no sense now, and it won't make sense uh, years into the future. Yeah, I think um, I don't want to keep reiterating what we should have done, but I think moving forward, like what has happened has happened. I think moving forward, we as we begin to open up and we enter a uh, a time where you know more and more Canadians are being vaccinated, we allow the businesses to open. Um, and obviously that's going to look different in each province, but I, I genuinely think we should stop injecting billions of dollars into companies that are failing. Um, COVID has accelerated a lot of things. It's accelerated a lot of trends. It's accelerated a lot of digitization, and there's going to be a lot of companies in a post pandemic world which should not exist and only exist now because the government is injecting tons of capital into, for lack of a better word, zombie corporations. Um, I love mom and pop shops, but a lot of them, if they are unable to adapt, they need to collapse in order to, um, for new businesses to enter them and provide new life into a new economy. And uh, I think that's the natural evolution of, of any good economy is the recycling and adaptation of business. And that's what needs to happen. Now, I'm going to oh, I'm going to disagree with you slightly The these mom and pop shops, these small businesses, they weren't 
they didn't die out. They were forcefully closed. And that kind of ruined every, like, it, not just in Canada, uh, many states in the United States and all over the world, they were choked out. They didn't uh, just die of their own volition because they couldn't survive. They were killed. So I, I disagree with your argument uh, in that sense. I think when it comes to, um, uh, in my opinion, reopening post-COVID, to get back to the question, I think that I'm not going to really go on the typical, with all due respect, liberal NDP fantasy world image of everything's going to be okay, we're going to have your back, we're going to give you billions of dollars to businesses who probably don't need it, who are probably just so collapsed to the point where funding won't just do anything. I'm, I'm just going to say right now, it's going to be tough for a lot of businesses. Now, if they can do it, if they can open back up again and fund themselves, work for themselves with little no government assistance, because of course the government already has both provincial and federal, and by provincial I mean all ten provinces and of course the three territories. They already had enough, they already have enough debt. So I think that the lockdowns should be lifted, as we've kept reiterating, and they should just open that back up and fend for themselves. And I think also, considering that the question involves large businesses, I think that the mostly the NDP and liberals especially, should not treat the big businesses like corporations and companies as the big bad wolf from the three little pigs. Because at the end of the day, I think that those companies who are for some reason wrongfully hated saved the Canadian economy and saved thousands of jobs and thousands of people from going unemployed and losing their income. So I think that at the end of the day, it's gonna to be tough for small businesses, but the importance is they have to be allowed to open up they go up as soon as possible, and they gotta they gotta open up, follow all restrictions, and they gotta do it mostly on their own. Now, if assistance is needed, then go ahead. That's kind of the government's job, no matter what party, of course. No matter what party, nobody wants to see a business fail. Nobody wants to see the economy go tank. But I think that they just gotta sail through it themselves as much as they can. I think the major issue, and I kind of agree a little bit with Benjamin, though, is that big businesses were given. I mean, blank checks in a lot of cases from the government, uh, federal or provincial, uh, to deal with this issue, to deal with the lockdowns. And, you know, the government asked for virtually nothing in return from these companies. So you just you saw this massive, um, you know, uh, flowing of wealth to these companies uh, undeservedly, again, because like Benjamin said, because businesses were forcibly stopped. Uh, so that really killed a lot of small businesses uh and so then all this capital was given uh you know carte blanche to these massive companies and now you have this really imbalanced um you know wealth distribution even the that payroll um subsidy you know so many of these companies that took the subsidy still ended up um firing tens of thousands of employees to and no there was no recourse from the government on that in terms of that money that was given to them they just got it and you know that issue sort of fell out of the news cycle but i do think there needs to be something to address what has happened which is you have this massive um transfer of wealth that happened and was perpetrated by the government uh from small businesses and individuals to massive corporations something needs to be done to address that to help businesses that well not help businesses that close but help reopen new businesses and then help those who are still holding on that you know, by threads. Yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't be opposed to having a. And 
I know this isn't super conservative, but uh, taxing the mega corporations who have increased their profit dramatically during COVID for the sole purpose that other businesses weren't available to service, um, you know, the, the similar industry. And uh, I would give the money that is taxed from those businesses to rejuvenating competition in that industry post pandemic. And I think that it's not something that's not conservative. It's just a smart policy. And I think that's fair. Yeah, because going off the assumption that, you know, things just played out how they did is is wrong, right? That's that's not how it happened. There was a lot of government intervention to the tune of 200 and $40 billion, as you mentioned before, Devin. So clearly the government was up to a lot and they were spending a lot of money. But in reality, most of that was spent in, you know, padding out the profits of these huge companies and giving them money that was said to be for set purposes. But in reality, there was no teeth to enforce that they used it for those purposes. So a lot was mis, you know, mishandled and improperly used. And uh, definitely, I agree, should be should be taken back and uh, reinvested locally, you know, at, at smaller levels. Uh, the federal government should bring that money down so that they're not dealing with just the biggest companies at the biggest level that have, you know, the ability to uh, lobby the federal government for things that benefit them. Yeah, the one thing in this um, pandemic is that the rich have gotten richer and the poor have gotten poorer for sure. I'm hesitant on the taxation of all their extra profits because that's not necessarily the corporation's fault. It's the government's, really. They forced everyone else to close and everyone else to have these restrictions. You know, if that's what they do, fine. But I don't know if that's quite the way to get small businesses going. I think if just, you know, open them up and, you know, that how capitalism basically works is that if it's a bad idea and it's a bad business, it will die. But if it's a good business that has, you know, some legs to it, then it'll it'll survive. That's, you know, that's kind of the advantage of a free market economy. It might be that simple in, you know, theory, and it might be nice to talk about it that way, but it really does miss that $240 billion elephant in the room, right? Because it wasn't a free market and it isn't. It's so much of it is, well, so much of it has been propped up or left to die uh, by the federal government and by provincial governments and their decision to spend and not to spend. So I feel like taxing to get the money back that was improperly um, given is unlikely. I don't think the governments are likely to do that, but I do think it makes for smart retroactive policy to make up for the their missteps from before. No, for sure. The way the government has approached this has not been a very capitalist way. It's been very uh, liberal, I suppose. I think to um, uh, quickly close off here, I agree with all of your proposals to tax big corporations, but I think I'm against to let the big corporations and the big businessmen who made all these profits during the pandemic pay for everything, as many, particularly the NDP, have pointed out to. I think that at the end of the day, Everybody should pay their fair contribution. I know it's not a conservative thing, as Devin said, but I think everybody should pay their dues to, to the pandemic recovery. But I think that what people say about tax, give it the most um, taxes to the big corporations and the big businessmen is, is wrong and false. Thank you all. And with that final discussion, we will be ending our podcast for tonight. 
We look forward to having you join us again for further discussions on the Brock Campus Conservatives podcast. Thank you once again to all of our participants and to everyone who came out to listen to the Brock Campus Conservatives podcast. Thank you all. Stay safe. Take care and have a great evening.